This is Publishers Weekly Radio, the authority on all things books and publishing, with everything you need to know from your favorite books and the world in which they live to bestseller lists and publishing news. Here's the inside story on your favorite story. Publishers Weekly Radio, with your hosts, Rose Fox and Mark Rotella. Hello and welcome to Publishers Weekly Radio on the web at publishersweekly.com slash pwradio and streaming free on iHeartRadio and iTunes. I'm Rose Fox and I'm a reviews editor at Publishers Weekly. And I'm Mark Rotella, senior editor at Publishers Weekly. We're bringing you the very best of book talk directly from PW's offices in New York City, the heart of the book publishing world. This week, it's a special week. Mark and I are on vacation. We are not, in fact, in PW's offices. We're traveling around. And so we've queued up some of our greatest hits for you from our archives and interviews with authors whose books remain timely and fascinating. And when we're back, we're going to bring you the bestseller lists right before the winter holidays. So we'll talk to you soon. Today we've got Beverly Jenkins on the line. She's the author of over 30 historical romances featuring African Americans. Beverly, thanks so much for for joining us on Black History Month. Well, thank you for for inviting me. We are so delighted to have you on, and I'm hoping that you're going to tell us all about, uh, first of all, your new novel, Destiny's Embrace. Yes. Uh, It's the first book in a new series that is set in uh, 1880s California. I haven't had a chance to really set a book there yet, and I've been wanting to do so because of the, the great uh, history. Um, and in doing the research, I found out that California is the only state in the Union named for a black woman. So uh, that's kind of exciting. That. Queen Calafia. She was oh. an Amazon queen, uh, fictional, uh-huh. featured in a book in 1500 by a Spanish guy. And she lived on an island of gold, and she had battle-trained griffins, and she had a navy, and she had a, an army of Amazon warriors, and caught the imagination of, of Spain back then with the book. And some of the historians say that, in reality, the, uh, the conquistadors were looking for her island of gold when they came to the New World looking for uh, El Dorado. So uh, she's become the spirit of California over the years, and... Um, there are murals of her and her Amazons in some of the older hotels, and uh, Disney did a tribute in the 80s and had Whoopi Goldberg as the queen, and Whoopi did the narration for a, I don't know, 10, 15-minute presentation that they did on the history and spirit of California, even had a bust of, of Whoopi as the queen, and then uh, they tore everything down and replaced it with a ride for The Little Mermaid. <laughs> wow! 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 Now, so did you know all of this? Did you know all of this uh, before I, I, you started researching? Or, or I knew a little. I knew a little bit about Queen Calafia, but I didn't know that you know California was supposedly named after her and all of that. So it was mm-hmm. was quite surprising and, and quite uh, uh, invigorating. So I put that in the book. So you write about the Civil War in the late nineteenth century America. What is it about that period that captures your imagination? Well, um, I do it because what happened in the 19th century is the base and the basis of who and what the race is today in the 20th, 21st century. Mm -hmm. In spite of the Jim Crow and the lynchings and the, the 
horror that was visited on the race after uh, the Civil War when the United States pulled the troops out and out of New Orleans in 1876. The race continued to thrive. I mean, we, we still built, co- we built colleges. We, um, we were explorers. We founded towns. Uh, we loved. We raised our, our kids. We, mm-hmm. you know, so all of that is the basis for who and what the race is now. But, you know, mm-hmm. if you look at the history books, you will see that, you know, African Americans, you know, arrived here as, as Africans in the, in the halls of ships and, then we were freed in 1865, and there's sort of a whole century missing, and we're suddenly rediscovered in the history books, Ryden and Watts in 1965. Mm-hmm. You have that whole century where there's nothing about the great black newspapers that were were published in the 19th century. You you find very very little about the the men that were in Congress at that time, or the the, the one senator that that represented the race. So there's so much there, and uh, I could spend the rest of my life writing about the the uh, 19th century, and 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 still not, still not have enough time to tell all the stories. I'm Mark Rattel, and you're listening to Publishers Weekly Radio. We're talking with Beverly. Jenkins, Jenkins about writing African-American historical romance. Beverly, many of your books, the last couple of books, and it has been said, we've been talking the late 19th century America. What, and, and you talked about this is a whole time period, a century that's gone by. How much research do you put in into your novels and writing that? I mean, you're telling about everyday people, about love uh, in, in times after tribulation. I have a bibliography in the backs of most of my books. I spent most of my adult years working in libraries, so the research for me is very, 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 very easy. And there's a lot of historians mm-hmm. whose shoulders I stand on um, to bring this accurate history to my readers. I get a real kick out of it. I love the history. I love the research. And, you know, it was also, um, I put the biblist in, in order for people to who wanted to do more investigating into whatever time period I'm doing, whether it's the Civil War, whether it's the the black and brown outlaws of Indian Territory, or, or whether it's the Jean de Couleur of, of Louisiana, so that they could go to the back of the book, they could look at the sites that I've cited, and go ahead and do that research if they wanted to delve further. So it's a, it's a cool way and painless way of teaching parts of, the, of, of American history that have sort of fallen out or were torn out of the quilt that makes us a country. And tell me a little bit about why you write romance particularly. It seems sort of at first glance that it might be hard to balance that with some of the, the harsh realities that were going on at the time. Well, I, I, yeah, I tell people I write romance because that's the first thing that's sold. <laughs> um, you have a tendency to go with, with you know, what is picked. And, I, you know, and I'm blessed to have a, a, a editors and a, and a publishing company that will let me do, you know, a lot of different things. But, you know, I, I try and balance that harshness with a little bit of humor, um, like you said, with the everyday lives, because, you know, you we, we didn't spend our whole lives running from the Klan and all that. Mm-hmm. Um, right. But, you know, you want to give a taste or a touch or even a little bit more of the reality so you could see how the political situation affected people in their everyday lives. Are there other authors who are who are writing in this particular time period and, and with this particular focus? I feel like you're really the only one I see. I sort of got the niche to myself. Um, I know Anita Bunkley is doing some things and she has done some things in the past, but basically, you know, I'm in, I think. Um, it'd be nice for me to be able to 
you know, to read somebody else who's doing uh, um, this sort of research. I know um, Pitts, first name, um, Lewis, has done a, the book titled To Freeman, which mm-hmm. is about an uh, African-American man who um, walks from Pennsylvania back down south to find his wife after the Civil War. Wow. And that's, that's probably the, one of the closest things to to what I've been writing. But yeah, you know, that's one of the things that I've, you know, wanted to ex- explore too, because, you know, people say, well, you know, black people in the love and, you know, and, and stereotypes and all that. But, you know, there were many, many men who walked for months and months and months after the Civil War looking for their families and looking for their wives. So you try and base it in reality and then and, and do your own fictional twist on that. Mm-hmm. And uh, I'm sure that some of our listeners are also authors or aspiring authors. Do you have any suggestions for someone who might want to, to break into the field a little bit in this area? Well, yeah, I, you know, you want to write, regardless of what you're writing, you want to write the best book that you can. But you also want to do the research, mm-hmm. and you want it to be as accurate as possible, because people will send you letters if your stuff's not right. Um, and you want it to reflect... Uh, you know, what people did every day, how they spoke. Uh, you have to immerse yourself in the uh, time period. When I first started doing this 19th century um, journey back in 1994, I was so immersed in the time period and the, and the language that my whole speech patterns changed. And, you know, I'd be speaking, and people were like, what the hell are you talking about? <laughs> you know, so, <laughs> so, you know, you, you become so immersed in it and you know and I and, and earlier you know I'd be writing and you know the phone would ring and it would really jolt me it was like oh that's right you know there are phones now so right. um, you know you just have to immerse yourself and and what they wore I have a um, a catalog from Bloomingdale's from 1886 so I can see what the clothing looked like and wow. you know you sur- yeah surround yourself with with great historical stuff I've got another book that's uh, focuses on everyday life in the 19th century and you know and it talks about the money and and what people wore and what they drove and what the stoves look like and you know because you want to be accurate you don't want to have to guess or you don't want to make anything up because that isn't necessary if you do your research it'll all unfold for you I'm Rose Fox, and you're listening to Publishers Weekly Radio, and we are talking with Beverly Jenkins about writing African-American historical romance. About 10 years ago, you started branching out into romantic suspense and faith-based women's fiction. Tell us about that. I was, as I was mentioning earlier, you know, I, I'm, I'm, I'm lucky and, and blessed to be with a publisher that uh, will let me play in different sandboxes. Mm-hmm. Um, sometimes publishers, you get into one genre, and, and it's a hard time breaking out. But they've been very, very encouraging. So um, when my editor asked me if I had anything that was contemporary, I went into my little drawer and brought out this story. And I love doing the romantic suspense because I, I like I get to do car chases, and I get to blow stuff up, and um, I get to do, you know, freaky kind of science kinds of things. and uh-huh. you know, sure scientists who were doing cold fusion experiments and chased by the bad guys and all that. So there are five of those in that series. Um, the readers really, really liked it. I'd like to get back to that maybe on my own. Um, but I love that series. I love it. I got to do uh, uh, Deadly Sexy, which is about a female sports agent and mm-hmm. you know the, the intrigue around one of her guys that she fired, one of her employees. So and I'm a big sports fan. So 
I got to put my love of sports in that. So I'm really, really, in, really enjoy the the romantic suspense. Now the faith-based stuff. That was interesting because my agent has been on me for years about doing a small town book because she said, you know, with the historicals, I was really, really good at creating these small towns. Right. And I like to put my stories on top of places where African Americans actually walked. So, you know, I'm not creating these, these, these towns out of the blue. So she went to my editor with a proposal about uh, doing a small town book. And out of that proposal came the Blessing series. And basically what I did was I took the small town from my very first book, which is based on the all-black towns in Kansas that were established in the late 1870s, and I put my faith-based book, the first one, in the same town so that you could see what happened to this town from, like, 1879 to, you know, 21st century. Right. And if you know anything about small towns, you know that mostly the infrastructure's gone. There's not anybody to pay the taxes. Uh, Mm -hmm. Usually nobody there but senior citizens. And that was what was happening with this town. And you have the descendants from my original town still living in this small town. So since they couldn't pay their bills and they're having all these economic issues, they put themselves on eBay. Yeah, and the town is called Henry Adams, Kansas. And I took that because there's been a couple precedents, especially out uh, in the Northwest and in California, of small towns putting themselves on eBay. So they put themselves on eBay, the town fathers, and uh, there's a woman uh, back east who has just gotten an enormous divorce settlement from her oil executive husband. Mm-hmm. And instead of taking that 200 and I think she got $248 million as a settlement, wow. um, instead of buying shoes and handbags like I would have done, she buys, <laughs> <laughs> she buys this town because she's, uh, she's into the history and she wants to preserve the history. But she was a social worker when she married her husband. And so that has always resonated, you know, the desire to help and, and be helpful and change lives has always resonated within her. So she gets these, uh, brings in five foster kids. Mm-hmm. And that's a bunch of foster parents and brings everybody to Henry Adams and uh, wants these kids to be raised old school. So with the help of the senior citizens that are there and these new foster parents, we watch these five at-risk kids grow and blossom and, 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 and enjoy you know, life out on, in the middle of nowhere. Mm-hmm. on the plains of north central kansas so there are so far four books in the series it's gotten great great reviews uh there's a big crossover readers reading it from all walks of life all colors all ages i got a letter uh, email a couple months ago from a young man who was 17 and he's dyslexic and he said uh, in the email that he had never read for pleasure because it was so difficult for him, mm-hmm. but that he had read all four of these books. And that just wow. sort of made my heart just go, you know, thump, thump, thump. Um, yeah, I imagine it did. That's wonderful. Yeah. Foster parents have sent me letters. Uh, they've sent me pictures of their children, um, social workers. Uh, it's, it's just been, you know, it's called the Blessing Series, but it has been a blessing in my life as well. Wow. And... Going back to maybe the faith-based women's fiction, in in a review of of your book in in our magazine, something old, something new, we call that novel Christian romance. W- would you agree with that? Well, I, you know, I it's not, you know, it's so hard sometimes to put books in the box. You know, publishers and and booksellers want to sort of put you in a box so they'll know how to sell it. 
and I guess you could call it Christian because it's based in that kind of a of a foundation. Um, but you could also call it historical, contemporary historical. You could also call it mm-hmm. women's fiction. You could also call it. I mean, we've got a. An 800-pound hog who's a murderer in this series, too, so I don't know what you'd call that. (laughs) (laughs) Right, right. (laughs) So, you know, I'm just just glad that, you know, I'm in the bookstore. You know, and wherever they want to put it or call it um, is fine with me. I'm Mark Rattel, and you're listening to Publishers Weekly Radio. We're talking with Beverly Jenkins about African-American historical romance. And, Beverly, I'm going to throw a little change up here. You would mentioned earlier on you're a big sports fan. What what yeah. teams What teams and what sports? Uh, and where football, is it that you live football, right football, football. Football. <laughs> My daddy started taking me to games when I was eight years old. Um, you know, I'm outside. I grew up in Detroit, so, ah. you know, I have the Lions or my cross to bear. And, right. um, but I love football, love uh, college basketball, getting ready for March Madness with my uh, college team, Michigan State. I think we're number, I think we're number eight now mm-hmm. in the uh, wow. AP uh, 25 poll. Um, we're playing Indiana tonight. Indiana's raised number one. So, um, love football, love hockey, Red oh, Wings fan. Fantastic. Uh, <laughs> Cup. Uh, we're not doing real well this year, but, you know, we'll, we'll be back. Uh, well, we've only had yeah. half a season. <laughs> What'd you say? You've only had half a season of hockey. Oh, yeah. You know, yeah. even at that, you know, right, yeah. right. not a real good fan, fan of the commissioner, sure. but, you know, that's a different conversation. Right. Exactly. Exactly. <laughs> now, <laughs> So now, now one question about music. You had mentioned something uh, before we got on. Uh, what is it you're listening to right now, and why oh, okay. something you yeah, post on it's, Facebook? It's it's, it's, most, it's Smokey Robinson's birthday today, right? And um, I have a tendency to to just break out what I call the turntable and, and, and put stuff up. My my fans are, are are so wonderful. They call me DJ Bevy Bev. So <laughs> that's great. <laughs> that's so when you guys called, I was um, doing a tribute to uh, Smokey Robinson. It was his mm-hmm. birthday. He's 73 years old. God, that man still looks good. Um, so I had just gotten through with maybe playing, I don't know, eight or nine. Because, you know, from Detroit. So I grew up with mm-hmm. this. Sure. Um, so I finished. I just finished playing eight or nine of his uh, tunes with him and the Miracles. And then I was going to do um, a quick little set on some of the other stuff that he's written because he wrote for everybody at Motown. I mean, from... The Temptations to Marvelettes to Marvin Gaye to Mary Wells. So I had just put up uh, It's Growing by uh, The Temptations, which is one of my favorite tunes. So, uh, yeah, so that's what I love Facebook. I call it Crackbook because I'm there a lot too much. <laughs> sure, um, sure. <laughs> sure. So, yeah, so that was what I was doing when you guys called. All right. Well, we've been talking with Beverly Jenkins, who's the author of Destiny's Embrace, out now from Avon Historical Romance. And obviously, you can also find her and her tunes on Facebook. (laughs) Beverly, thank you so much for joining us today. You are so welcome. Thanks for the invite. I had a ball. All right. So did we. I'm Mark Rotella. And I'm Rose Fox. And this is Publishers Weekly Radio. Hi, I'm Scott Ian, author of I'm the Man, and you are listening to Publishers Weekly Radio. Welcome back. I'm Rose Fox. And I'm Mark Rotella, and you're listening to Publishers Weekly Radio, direct from the PW offices in New York City. Today, we've got Paul Rosalie on the line. He's the author of Mother of God, an extraordinary journey into the uncharted tributaries of the Western Amazon. Paul, thanks so much for joining us. 
Thanks for having me. So tell us a little bit about this book and that extraordinary title. <laughs> um, I grew up um, reading the stories of adventures and nonfiction, and I started working in the Amazon when I was 18 years old. And you know, when you work in the West Amazon, it's this wild west sort of landscape where you have gold, gold miners and poachers and loggers and uncontacted tribes and, of course, giant anacondas and all the craziest wildlife you can imagine. And after working there for a few years, I just I had the luck of running into some really unique experiences. So, uh, you know, this book just sort of sort of came out of nowhere. So, where where does the title of your book come from? When, you, when you're publishing a book, I, I wrote the book, and then the publisher wanted a subtitle, and I said, I don't really know what to call it. You know, I had these very, you know, conservation biology sort of titles for it, like, you know, like a, an interesting look at the ecosystems, and they were like, no, 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 and they were like, this is what it needs to be, so they, um, they came up with that. It's an extraordinary journey, but it sounds like you've made many journeys through there. Um, it's been, it's been, it's kind of the summary of an, of a, of a bunch of journeys. Yeah. It's, it's been over the last 10 years, sort of my, my recurring trips down there and each chapter is a part of, of the greater story of which has been trying to protect this one river down there. So you said you went down there when you were 18 years old and, uh, how did you end up going down there and getting into this field? It says you were a naturalist and an explorer. Well, I grew up in New York, and my parents would always bring me to the Bronx Zoo, which was my favorite place. Mm -hmm. And in, when you go in the Bronx Zoo, you go into the reptile house and jungle world, and you see these pictures of scientists in places like Borneo and the Amazon and these exciting places. And as a little kid, it just got in my head that those are the places I wanted to be, and I wanted to be those guys who get to see all the incredible wildlife and work to protect it. And so I actually dropped out of high school after sophomore year, took my GED and started going to college. And um, I at first went to the Amazon as an ecotourist. The first time I went, I was just a volunteer um, helping out on a research project. And then I just had the incredible luck of making great friends with a local guy down there who started teaching me things. So you run a, a tourism company now, but uh, you're using the tourism to support rainforest conservation. So tell us a little bit about how that works. Basically, the area of the Amazon where we are called the Madre de Dios, Mother of God. Um, it's, it's an incredibly wild place, and there's these huge national parks there. And the reason these parks are there is because the Peruvian government has agreed to say, instead of just ripping out this forest, we're going to try and make a sustainable alternative. So they're trying to encourage ecotourism. And with the, with the wildlife that's there, I mean, you have more butterflies than anywhere else on Earth, more plants, more reptiles and amphibians. It has all the superlatives. This is the most biodiverse place on the whole planet. So ecotourism is, is a pretty is a pretty viable option down there and what I'm doing is trying to bring it to a corner of this place where it hasn't been before. So the Las Piedras River, which a lot of the book focuses on, is this really remote spot of jungle that very recently has had a road cut that accesses it. So the river is changing really fast, but what we're trying to do is establish ecotourism on the river, which will employ local people and also allow us to sort of work with the landowners and, you know, create, create a workable system so that this river isn't just clear cut. 
So, so tell us this uh, this region of Peru, the Madre de Dios, and this is the Mother of God. This is I was referring to before the title of your book, uh, where the Amazon River begins. Can you just give us a little description of what it might look like to someone just coming there for the first time? When you fly in, you fly in from Cusco, which is where Machu Picchu is, and you come through these clouds, and at first you're going past the high peaks of the Andes, so the plane is actually going parallel to these snowy, snowy caps. And then when you drop below the clouds, what happens is literally the Andes Mountains drop off and the Amazon starts. It's one of the only places in the world where you go from glacial high altitude down to steaming jungle in, in a matter of 15 miles. It's, it's, it's incredible. Mm. And first you hit this cloud forest where there's just these cascading waterfalls, and this is the headwaters of the Amazon. So the title, Mother of God, I actually think is very interesting because you have this incredibly unique, beautiful, and, you know, biodiverse place. And because of the mountains and the drop to the jungle, this is the engine that runs the Amazon jungle. Mm. So the systems, the, the, the moisture systems and the, the interactions between the different plants and animals, that's creating the Amazon. And the Amazon gives our planet a fifth of its oxygen and a fifth of its fresh water. So it's, it really is this, this life-giving system, this very, very special place on Earth that's not like anywhere else. So how has that place changed in all the time that you've been traveling there and spending time there? Um, you know, I started, it was 10 years ago now, which is really not that much time, but already I've seen a lot of change. There's been, you know, there's places where, I mean, the Trans-Amazon Highway, which is, you know, a project that Brazil cut, funded by the World Bank back in the 70s, and it was just paved, finished paved, being paved a few years ago, and I was there before it was paved, mm-hmm. when it used to be only four vehicles on this tiny dirt road per day. Now there's 866 vehicles on this road per day. And that road is the first time in all of history that there's a trade route now that connects the center of the Amazon to the Asian markets. So things like gold, timber, soy, beef, um, those, those are exploding and, you know, so is deforestation, you know, there's like kind of a land grab, it's the Wild West, people can go in there and just, it's too big to police, so the governments are, you know, having a hard time, so I've seen towns spring up, I've seen rivers dry up, I've seen a lot of gold mining, um, you know, back in the 90s we had the mahogany boom. And I write about this in the book that there was a time on the Las Piedras River where there was so much logging going on for mahogany, and mahogany trees are so valuable that the prostitutes in the in the backcountry would be on boats, and instead of collecting payment in money, since you're out in the wilderness, they would actually just carry tape measures and collect payment in board feet of timber. Wow! So, wow! Yeah, it's it's a rough country out there, and it's just changing fast. And, you know, it's kind of a free-for-all. Wow. And, and mahogany is one of the woods that have been, is, is that one of the ones that have been banned uh, in the United States? It's, it can't be banned because they're still selling it, but it's, it, they've been trying to regulate it. The problem is the, the, the entire logging industry is so corrupt. Mm-hmm. I actually have interviewed loggers down there who have told me that they, they try and comply with the international regulations on these precious hardwoods, and then each night trucks pull up and they swap lumber, call it different things, and they make their, their money under the table. Wow. And tell us yeah. about the indigenous people there. Um, how have their lives changed in the 10 years that you've been going there? 
Well, there's a few different, um, I'm not sure what to call it, levels maybe, but different types of indigenous people. You have people that are have indigenous heritage and now work in the city and are connected to the modern world and economy. Um, and then you have people that, like, like the people that I work with, who grew up in the jungle and are still very much part of their indigenous communities and still live with the forest and harvest, you know, bushmeat and other products. But in the Madre de Dios, we actually still have uncontacted tribes. Um, on the left Piedras River, we have, over the, over the, this summer in August, um, over 80 naked nomadic Indians came out onto the beach. Um, and the reason for this is the changes that are happening. They've noticed that there's more people coming into their forests, more hunters. And little quick history of uncontacted tribes. When when the Spanish showed up back in the you know 1500s, um, certain tribes were extinguished, others were made slaves, and certain tribes fought. These people have been fighting for you know half a millennium now, and they are the wildest. You know, we know nothing about these people. They have medicines we don't know about. They've never seen anything made out of metal. They have no spoons, forks, let alone the wheel. Um, and they're still surviving out there, but their world is changing. Um, big, for example, mahogany. People have taken all of the mahogany trees, even out of standing forests. They go in and take just the mahogany tree. Hmm. So the mahogany trees have been taken down across the Madre de Dios. So the only places that they're left are in the most extremely isolated parts of the jungle, and that's where the tribes live. So as the mahogany loggers go into these places, the loggers are firing shotguns, the tribes are firing bows and arrows, and both sides are, you know, killing each other. Wow, that sounds very intense. It so. is, it is. And the tribes can't advocate for themselves because they live they live in, you know, obscurity. Most people until actually until a few years ago the Peruvian government's official position was to deny their existence. They said that they were a myth. And now of course because of aerial photographs and encounters we know that they are not a myth. Wow. And what have your encounters been like as as you've been traveling there? Um, thankfully, I've only had one encounter. Um, the First of all, the tribes live in places that are extremely remote and hard to access. Um, and in the Madre de Dios, on Piedras, for example, you could travel upriver for two weeks by boat and still not reach the headwaters. Um, it's just this endless river. So they're way up there, and people have... There's been examples where people have run into these tribes and tried to talk with them or reason with them. Uh, one example, I, I believe it was in Colombia, where some missionaries ran into an uncontacted tribe, and they showed them clothing and hats, and they even took one of the guys for a ride in their plane, and these missionaries, in their religious fervor, weren't sort of aware of the fact that these people didn't understand the modern world. So when the missionaries showed a picture of their family back home, the people in the tribe looked at this picture and said, that, you know, they were confused. They saw humans, but at the same time, it looked like a trick because there was no human. And the leader of the tribe ordered all of the missionaries to be killed. So I believe it was five people were slaughtered on the beach simply because there was a misunderstanding that this tribe thought that they were, you know, having some sort of evil spirits with them because of a photograph. Um, so you really have to be careful around tribes. They also have no immunities to the common cold and other things that we're carrying on us. So an encounter between us and them, although it could be physically dangerous at the moment for us, um, in the long run they could end up, entire tribes have been wiped out by con contact. So, um, 
it's pretty it's a pretty you know delicate situation thankfully when i saw um the the tribe that i saw it was pretty far off they saw me i saw them and i made a very clear show of turning around and getting out of there as fast as i could <laughs> well yeah. let's talk anacondas now uh this uh, is uh this is okay. a specialty of yours uh yeah. uh something you've been researching for I, I imagine those 10 years that you've been uh down there at least part of those 10 years how um how does your existence affect the Amazon ecosystem? And tell us what you tell tell us about your fascination in general with anacondas. Sure. Well, I I have this fascination in general um, with snakes. I've been working with snakes and and catching, rehabilitating, rescuing snakes since I was eight years old. I've worked with spitting cobras and bushmasters and all the most venomous snakes. Um, handling snakes is kind of my specialty. Um, with anacondas, you know, it's, a, it's the biggest, heaviest snake on earth. You know, they're just legendary. And in the Amazon, what's interesting is a lot of the apex predators get attention. Jaguars get attention, giant river otters, harpy eagles, all these big predators that excite people. Anacondas are an apex predator that doesn't get a lot of attention. Um, part of this is because they're a snake and everyone's scared of snakes. The other part is because they're kind of difficult to study. Um, so when I first went to the Amazon, you know, I understood the importance of this species. They start out at only two feet when they come out of their mother, and they're, they're born live, they're not, they don't come out of eggs. And this two-foot animal can eat small fish, small birds, frogs, mice, and then when they get to, to their full size, which is up to 30 feet, wow. they can eat jaguars, humans, black caiman, you know, all, anything in the Amazon can be eaten by an anaconda. Right. So you have this thing that's affecting every level of the food chain. Mm -hmm. And so it's an incredibly important character in sort of the cast of Amazon predators. And I noticed that we weren't seeing them in a lot of places. And the aha moment came when we were on an expedition in a really remote place and we started seeing tons of anacondas. And we sort of realized that people down there just kill them. If, you, if, if a local person sees an anaconda, they're gonna kill it because they're scared of it and they don't understand it. Um, so they shoot them. So we found that in human areas there's really not anacondas and in more wild areas, there's a lot more anacondas, and that's partly because they're being hunted and partly because the other animals that aren't also aren't being hunted, there's more of a prey base. So we started looking for anacondas and just started finding all this incredible stuff. In fact, the in this region, anacondas have never been studied before. So right now we're actually starting the first official study of anacondas, and our study, which, um, you know, I talk about in the book, led us to the floating forest, which is a completely unique, you know, sort of place that I haven't been able to find its, its equal anywhere in the Amazon. Mm. So, uh, so, so we found some pictures of you getting pretty up close and personal <laughs> with anacondas. You, you should have seen the looks on our faces. <laughs> those are those are some impressive creatures. What's it like to be, you know, hugged by an anaconda? Well, as long as you know how to do it, it's really nice. Um, they're it's basically. You know, it's basically a giant muscle. So those pictures, um, the ones that you saw, the biggest one I have pictures of, are it's a 15 foot female, and she was about, she was considerably thicker than my thigh, and I'm, I'm 5'10 and 180 pounds. Uh, so this is a big snake. And it took us 20 minutes of wrestling and maneuvering to get this snake manageable. That's, that's wow. how serious she was. And it was four of us in, that, in, in the team that got her. Wow. Yeah, and when you have that snake over your shoulders, you have to be really careful because they can collapse your rib cage 
in a matter of seconds, less than 10 seconds. I mean, they kill animals much bigger than us. They can take down cows. Mm. So we're, we're really easy for them to asphyxiate and crush. So yeah, you, you have this huge animal over your neck and you can just feel every muscle in its body moving. It's actually really an incredible, impressive thing. And they're really beautiful up close. Mm-hmm. You know? So how did you know that this one in particular was not going to crush you? Oh, no, she tried. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, the thing is with anacondas, they, we go anaconda hunting. There's a phenomenon down there called friaje where the, the cold air from the Andes, sometimes in May and June, it blows down into the lowlands, and the jungle goes down to like 50 degrees, which for the jungle feels like the dead of winter. Mm-hmm. And the anacondas, as reptiles, they need the sun to get their warmth, so they, they end up coming out, which they never do. They end up coming out and exposing themselves in the open and looking for the sun. And so you find these very tired, you know, relaxed, frigid anacondas, giants laying on the sides of the river. So we found her like that. And, you know, when you we have to measure her and we have to weigh her and we have to find out whether it's a he or she. So we have to kind of work with them. But in order to do that, they think you're attacking them. And as far as they know, they're in, you know, they're in danger of losing their life, so they're going to defend themselves. Mm. So you, as the, as the anaconda catcher, you have to make sure that you're right behind the head, and you know you have to. That's the point of going with a bunch of people because if that's going grass around you, you're done. Wow. Now let's turn the conversation just a little bit to to the writing of the book. Now it, you've you've spent what seems a long time outdoors, um, and writing seems to be more of an indoor endeavor. How how was how was that experience for you? Um, the actual act of writing, if you asked me before I started writing this book, I never would have um, sort of imagined myself becoming an author, but I found that the stories that I had, whether it's anacondas or an encounter with a jaguar or sort of giving people a taste of what the Madre de Dios is like, you know, to me, being able to get it perfect and to, to really bring someone into that world was really interesting to me. And I found the writing process actually really good. Most of it started where we come back muddy and bloody and sweaty from a long day out or a long two weeks out, you know, with anaconda feces still all over us. And I would just be sitting there at night in my hammock writing down in my notebook. <laughs> and then a month later when I got home, I would, you know, spend weeks at the, you know, at the computer, you know, turning it all into, into writing. It was a long process and, and difficult for me because I'm, I'm not a person that can sit still for very long. But it was very, very enjoyable and gratifying. We've been talking with Paul Rosalie. You can find his book, Mother of God, in stores right now. Paul, thank you so much for joining us, and thank you for uh, all these wonderful stories. Oh, thanks for having me. It's been a real pleasure. Thanks a lot. I'm Mark Rotella. And I'm Rose Fox, and this is Publishers Weekly Radio. Hi, I'm Myra Kalman, author and illustrator of My Favorite Things, and you're listening to Publishers Weekly Radio. And that's it for today's show. I'm Rose Fox. And I'm Mark Rotella, and you've been listening to Publishers Weekly Radio. Join us next week for another scintillating author interview. We'll also have lots more juicy insider info on best-selling books and the nuts and bolts of publishing. In the meantime, you can find this in every episode of Publishers Weekly Radio on our website at publishersweekly.com slash pwradio, and also on iHeartRadio and iTunes, available for you to listen absolutely free. So check the site every week for a brand new episode giving you the inside 